It's time for a wellness revolution. Brought to you by Hotsi Health and Wellness Center. Honest discussion on maintaining health and wellness naturally to enjoy a better quality of life. He's the doctor fighting to let you keep your doctor. Now, Dr. Stephen Hotsi. Welcome to Dr. Hotsi's Wellness Revolution. I'm Stacey Banfield here with Dr. Stephen Hotsi, founder of the Hotsi Health and Wellness Center. And just when you thought you might have heard everything about the coronavirus, we have an expert, Dr. Lee Merritt, who is a wealth of information. I know you will find the interview very informative. Thank you so very much, Stacy, and thank each one of you for joining us today on Dr. Hotsey's Wellness Revolution. We have a terrific program ahead of you. We have Dr. Lee Merritt. Dr. Lee Merritt is a medical physician, orthopedist, as a matter of fact, graduated from medical school back in the 19, somewhere around 1980, Rochester School of Medicine in New York. Uh, She lives now in Iowa, but after she graduated, she went on and did an orthopedic residency and subsequently joined the Marines, and she was a physician and surgeon in the Navy and and, uh, worked in the Marine Corps for 10 years, and there she became acquainted with all kinds of interesting subjects. For instance, even because she was a physician there, they had to be trained on bioterrorism and biowarfare. Just That's the nature of uh, being a physician in the military. You have to know about that. So that educated her. So now when she came in contact with this whole COVID scandemic, she had a she already had the background to do a really good analysis of what had been going on. So Dr. Merritt has been an outspoken advocate for our constitutional rights and liberties. She's been a pre- past president of the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons. She served on the, uh, on the Arizona Medical uh, Association board, and she's also a board certified with the American Academy of anti-aging medicine with Ron Klass, Bon Goldman, and that bunch. So that's a good group to be with. She she practices not only orthopedic medicine, but she does alternative and uh, alternative approaches to health using natural approaches to health rather than fo- focusing on pharmaceutical approaches. So she's been very, uh, been a leading force in recommending natural and even some pharmaceutical treatments for uh, the so-called COVID-19 virus and disease process. So, Lee, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your very courageous and bold leadership over the last year. I just admire you, and I'm so grateful that you've been willing to take a stand on this. Well, thank you so much for having me. And, you know, I, I know you from the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, and they're kind of responsible for me being here today because they taught me a lot about liberty. You know, it's a great doctor's group. And I realized what I, I had a d- different worldview after joining AAPS, and it's really helped me uh, be part of this fight. Well, let's talk about this. Let's go back. You, When did you first become concerned about this whole situation that there might be something um, – untoward, unseemly, even nefarious about what happened in our country back in March of 2020 when they announced that we were being attacked by this China virus, as as the president said, from Wuhan. 
tell me what yeah. your thoughts were and and about this and and explain to us your perspective on the COVID-19 uh, viral infection. Well, you know, I started watching this really early and in, in, even in December, mid-December. And I have a friend that used to work at USAMR at our Fort Detrick bioweapons lab. And I used to call him once in a while. I'd say, hey, this MERS thing, should I watch this? Nah, SARS, I remember in 2004, I said, should I be worried about this? Nah, but when I asked him about this one, he said, yeah, I would watch this. So I, I watched it like a hawk from about mid-December. By February, I had realized that this is a bioweapon and I traced it back and I came and I wrote a huge timeline. I had names and dates and who did what to who. It read like a Jean Le Carre novel. Um, you know, many people in that line timeline are actually uh, seem seem to be conveniently dead now. But the but the point I was going to make is that nobody would I put it out for publication. I tried to convince people that Fauci was funding this and not with his money, but he was the bag man. He right. was taking people's money. He functions like the mafia bag man. You know, he took a lot of money and he spread it around. And when everybody was blaming this on China, I said, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, it's it's fair to say this is a bioweapon. I can prove to you unequivocally in my that it's it's didn't come out of nature. There's like five cardinal things we look at to see whether something jumped naturally from animals into humans. This doesn't meet any of them. And but that's a different issue than who let it out and whether it was accidental. Those are three separate questions. Was it man-made? Who let it out? And was it accidentally or purposely let out? But there's a fourth question now, because what I've realized more recently is so I, I follow this whole thing. I got involved with um, the mask mandates first. That's how I really got involved because my office is in Omaha, Nebraska, and they were going to put a mask mandate out, which I realized was scientific nonsense. I've worn a mask 40 years as a spine surgeon. I've so I started studying all the literature I could on masks, and I knew that it, you know you and I know as a physician, when you're in the operating room, what are you taught to do if you're going to sneeze in a surgical mask? You're taught oh, to not look away from the wound because you'll blow the stuff out the side right. of the mask. On, on the, I mean, you cannot think that contains a 0.1 micron bias. So I knew this was nonsense. The, the old N95 masks, I mean, I've had to wear them for a few cases, but those were for tuberculosis and orders of magnitude larger pathogens. So this was all just nonsense and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I went down and speak at the city council and from there, one thing led to another, and this little snippet kind of went viral. And then Simone Gold called me, and I ended up speaking with the AFL, the American Frontline Doctors on masks. I became the queen of mask denial, essentially. And from there, though, I've really spent I'm, I'm telling you, I'm a better student now than I ever was in medical school mm -hmm. or residency. I mean, I have been glued to the scientific literature and studying everything I can. And one thing that's very obvious. If you want to find out the truth, and this is an interesting point, I learned from a, a, a Taiwanese engineer when I was going out to give the mask talk, I had already figured this out, but he clarified it for me. He said, you know, Taiwan didn't get hit very bad with this thing from China. And one of the reasons is we never listen to what the Chinese say officially. We don't listen to the party or their newspapers. We have a whole part of government that monitors Chinese social media. And when they see somebody getting particularly censored, we know that's something we need to watch is probably being true and something they don't want us to know. And I, that's really, you know, the three things I've started looking at here is, is it being censored? And are they going, If you know, like in the Marine Corps, the Marine pilots would say, you know, if you're catching flack, it just means you're over the you're target. You're over the target. I've learned if you're catching a lot of flack, 
you're over a big target they don't want you to take down. And for the first, and the first thing was masks. Now you might say, why are masks important? Why do they care? I had McGill University, this big fancy research place, come after me personally for my, my stand against the mask mandates and saying masks don't work. You have to ask yourself, why is that important? But if you look at what this is all about, and your point, this is a big psyop, the key to this psychologic operation is the mask. When people take off masks, they look around and nothing happens. They're going to say, oh, wait, this is all this is all hookum. I don't need to right. be in this mask. And the whole thing falls apart like a house of cards. So that's why you, you, we have to look at it from the from what take these parts. None of this makes sense scientifically. And I tell people this, you know, every bartender, Fauci may tell you that masks make a difference. Their own CDC publishes articles that say that they don't, by the way. But they they every bartender in every restaurant around the world understands that these don't work for contagion control. You cannot tell me that you walk into a, a restaurant and you have to wear a mask in the first six feet because you're dangerous. But then you can take it off to sit at the dining room table to put put the phone or to put it sit at the dining table, put put your phone on the on the on the mask on the table, touch everything. And that's contagion control. That's nonsense as is six feet social distancing and all this stuff. It's nonsense, but it's probably even worse than nonsense. It's a takedown procedure. Okay, so talk, I, let's talk about that. Yeah, Why, that what, what is it? This is a psychological operation, right. and we know that the best way to cause people to change their behavior is through a fear mechanism. It is the most powerful emotion there is. When you cause people to become fearful, they want right. to follow somebody who they think can protect them. So by telling people to put on their masks and to social distance and even to lock down, not to shake hands, to wash their hands. I mean, wash their hands. I mean, we, we created a whole uh, generation of germaphobes for crying out loud right. in a bucket. It's ridiculous. You know, people will come up, they want to bump you. They don't want to touch you. It's just, so what, what, what is the psychological effect of people wearing masks of social distancing, of bumping? What do you... What do you see that? How do you think that affects individuals? Well, yeah, it's an anti-humanist effect. It's an anti-human effect. Right. You know, the biggest, especially to our children, this is so important. And this is why I've been in the mask fight so aggressively is that this has damaged a whole generation of children. Right. I asked, I asked a friend of mine who's a pediatric psychiatrist. I said, if we took the masks off today, would our children be okay? And he said, no, we've damaged a whole generation. And this is going to waft into the next generation. As you pointed out, not just making them germ phobes, you're giving them a generalized fear of the world around them, fear of other people that are totally healthy, that, you know, fear that they might damage grandma. They have purposely attacked our children with a psychologic operation. And the, the, and, and there's a, there's a very famous, it's called the still face experiment. And it shows how babies just go uh, crazy with anxiety and just start crying when their mother has no expression on her face. Now that's what you're doing every time you mask your face and look at your baby. We're we're damaging our children. You know the biggest metabolic use of the human brain is in reading other humans' faces. Right. It's a skill that that actually you acquire, not just you can you can acquire the skill for facial recognition, you know, early on in life. But the skill to actually understand the meaning of people's facial expressions, that's a skill that goes on learning through teenagehood. So we're taking that away. So I think that's the number one reason for masks. And also, the masks are a sign of submission. It is an actually, it's an occult classic right. symbol. You wear it. It's a symbol of transformation. I'll be what you want me to be. I will 
um, I will be quiet, I will submit, I will obey, I'll transform myself into your new cult. And, you know, I live near Omaha, Nebraska, where the railroads go out. And in the old days, in the 1800s, the Chinese came over to work the railroads. And this was pointed out to me by a professor at Princeton, it's a very smart point, that when they came over, those were Han Chinese, but they wore the Manchu braid, that huge braid that down their back, that was called the Manchu Q. And that wasn't their hair design. They wore their hair traditionally on the top of their head, but they were forced to wear that braid because China had been conquered by the Manchu and a Manchu emperor forced all males in China to wear that braid on penalty of death. And so I tell people, never underestimate the power of, of symbology. I mean, that was a death. In fact, that was what part of that old show about Kung Fu when they came over to America, the secret agents from China would kill these Chinese that didn't wear the Manchu queue. Well, that's kind of what this, this is the whole point is it's a sign of submission. Now, in, in a, so th this is a psychological operation. And if you look at, if you look at um, Albert Biederman's chart of coercion about, he looked at North Korean prisoners of war after coming back to America, Americans that were prisoners of war after the Korean War. And he, he was asked to say, why are they so anti-American? What did they do to them over there? And he said, it wasn't any potion or magic. It was just simple um, psychologic operations. You know, you isolate them, you monopolize their perception, think the lockdowns and the constant 24-hour news cycle. And then you make them afraid, and then you add anxiety. You add confusion, rather, and then you make anxiety. So. Fauci's secondary job was to be the doctor of disinformation and confusion. So um, when you add in, when you add confusion to fear, you get anxiety, and that's how you get these people uh, driving around alone in their car with a mask on, or that's walking in the park all alone with a mask on. You go. God forbid, somewhere in a shower. I mean, <laughs> these are people that are Stockholm Syndrome patients. That's what you do. And Stockholm Syndrome people, which we have a whole generation now, we've created are people that will, they'll they'll not only do what their captors say, but they'll try to anticipate their captors so they won't get in trouble. So they'll wear six masks if you tell me to wear one. They wash their hands 30 times a day and stand 60 feet apart, if you, whatever it takes, so they won't get in trouble. Now, the sad thing is adults might get out of that, okay? But our children, there's a, this, the, there's a psychologic, there's a German psychologist. He's on my website, actually. I have a, his film because I think it's so important. He's part of the... Um, ACU 2020 people in Germany that are suing the WHO, I think. Right. But anyway, he's got a video, and it's surveying a little child in, in his exam room. You know how they have those one-way glasses right. that can observe a child's behavior. Like a two-and-a-half, three-year-old child, a bunch of toys on the floor, and he is spontaneously social distancing from his toys. You mm. know, dear God, that is what we are doing to our children, and we have to stop this right now. The, the, but the issue is, see, what we have to do is convince people we have to we have to clarify what really happened and that's been what i've been that's the kind of rabbit hole i've been going down later my research into what is this really all about you hear people say oh there's no virus it's just the flu well it's not just the flu i'm telling you i treat people with this there's something else going on but what is it and now we have a, an incredibly bad answer and that's this universal uh it's not a vaccine vaccination program we could talk about later but the real issue is we're doing all these things before we really understand what happened. If you want to look at that, there's more that we don't know about this than we know. For example, we haven't isolated the virus that I can figure out. I thought we had. The Chinese said we had at first, but it turns out it was kind of, they came up with some genetic sequences. They fed those to us. We jumped on it. 
and assumed that they had actually had the whole virus. But when lab professors in America now are asking the CDC for specimens, they, they can't, can't get produce them. them. Right. Yep. And they can't find anything except influenza A and influenza B. So I started looking, I started looking in the past, because if you want to understand today and the future, you really have to kind of look at the past. It turns out, and, and the current research, it turns out you can re reproduce all of the symptoms of COVID without a virus. All you need is the S1 subunit of the spike protein. And so for your audience, I mean, the, the coronavirus is a benign nothing burger virus that basically may not even give you a cold, but it could give you the cold or kind of slight upper respiratory symptoms. But because the spike protein of the coronavirus in the native types do not get past your nose and upper airway, they just don't do much damage. But, but in a lab, and we have lots of suspects for this because we followed the pathway and we have patents and all sorts of stuff, somebody took the spike protein and they genetically modified it to now fit into your human ACE2 pathway, which is in your ovaries, your testicles, your brain, your heart, your lungs, everywhere, okay? Now this thing can go everywhere and damage you and kill you or make you sterile, which is a big point here, I think. But you don't need to think that it got, we don't really have evidence that this spread like a virus. I, early on in February, when I realized this was some kind of bioweapon, I thought it was a viral bioweapon. I thought it was a real deal. But if you look at all the questions, they can pretty well be answered if you come up with another hypothetical scenario, which is what we do in science. We look at the world around us and then we make a hypothesis and then we set out to prove it. So I'm at the hypothesis stage. I'm not saying this is proven, but you look at the, you, you cannot make sense of what we see based on the idea that this is really just a coronavirus that's been modified. It still doesn't work. There's still problems here. So in my opinion, and this is just my hypothesis, I think the spike subunit of this is the bioweapon. And mm -hmm. I think it was somehow spread in maybe three cities like Italy, Wuhan and New York City to get this whole thing started. Killed a bunch of people early on, could have been spread by contact. There's a video, I think Epic Times had it, of a, of a gal in, in, I think it was in the Wuhan Apple store, touch, purposely touching all the keyboards in the computer and then shutting the lids just before this happened. So that's kind of an interesting thing. I wonder if we have any more evidence of that. There's, there's, We don't know, but we know that there are histories of of biologic agents that were made to be transmitted by contact. And one of them is an animal depopulation. They call it immunocontraceptive. And it was made just kind of like the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. So I'm going to say, I think there's a, there's a potential. This is a contact bioweapon poison or, or, or bioweapon that was placed on, maybe it's aerosolized. I don't know that, but it was put out in three cities. It created a bunch of death and, and destruction early on because it's very potent, but it only passes down if, if, if by, by what we've seen in other research that they've looked at these kind of weapons, it only passes down two to three passes through the, the animal or the human. So if it only passes a couple generations, that's why the real bad dying fizzled out so quickly. But they purposely did this at a time, like in late October. When we knew we'd have the flu virus coming out. Right coincided with the with the uptick in our flu virus right now had we not then we then the second thing they did or third thing is they implemented a fallacious testing program where they started redefining cases as positive tests 
and they started overcycling the PCR test. Right. So now everybody that gets sick with a flu-like illness, and most people don't realize that 60,000 people a year don't die of flu, about 6,000 do. The rest are influenza-like illness. The CDC doesn't even really count flu. But there is a viral season of a mixed bag of viruses. And if you then, and then so you get this, you get any kind of viral syndrome, then you take this PCR test, which had to be purposely falsified because it, this comes with a direction of, it's not made for diagnosis to begin with, but even, even so, competent lab people would read the instructions on the testing kit. It comes from different manufacturers. It tells you how to cycle it to not get too many false positives. In fact, it's, a, it's an analog gradient. You can decide how many false positives you'll accept and you can dial it down or dial it up depending on how you want it. So they purposely dialed it up at somebody's instruction all around the country so that in the world probably so that every time somebody came in with a viral illness, they were now counted as a COVID case and possibly death. And that kept the fear going. And if you notice, after this first rush of bad fallout, remember how it seemed to all die off and all the hospitals were saying, wait a minute, we got all prepped for this. And, and there we was nothing, right. These places in England. Because now we were left, and if you look at the death curve, it was a standard viral season death curve. But we are all locked down in fear in our in our masks. And then they then they trot out their their bevy of falsification people who write scientific looking articles that are just crap. I'm sorry to use that term, but it's just appropriate here. It, the, the one of the ones I'm thinking about was a, they actually published, and I wish I could remember some of the names, but they published this paper. And if you look at this, it shows a classic viral curve we have every year. And yet they show then their interventions in New York City and how that resulted. Like, in every viral year, we have a bell-shaped curve. And if you think about the uptick of that curve, they showed how um, just social distancing didn't work. Okay, that was the up curve. And they, because they did social distancing during that period of time, it didn't work. And then they put, then they looked at the top of the curve, which was the lockdown, and they said, well, that may have helped some, but then they took the downside of the curve, and then they, they showed that's when they did masking. Oh man, did that really work? Because their narrative is they wanted masking. Now, anybody looking at that scientifically, even casually, that knows anything about scientific rigor, would look at that as a total made-up garbage. That that's a it's that that curve happens every year whether you did anything. So putting those little lines on it and claiming it had to do with what your interventions were is just falsification. And then when I looked at the authors, guess who they were? They were Chinese chemists in Texas and a Chinese geologist at use at at Caltech. And then the last guy, which I didn't know his name. But my friend, uh, who is a PhD at Harvard, knew his name and said, oh, he is a big climate activist, um, got, a, got a big, maybe the Nobel Prize or something, but about the ozone layer or something. So these are people that have nothing to do with medical epidemiology. They don't live in New York. This could not have been real. I even tried to contact the guy at Caltech and then get an answer. I asked him, do you know your names on this paper? And, and if so, what are you thinking? <laughs> you know? I mean, I tried to be nice, but I never got an answer. That's what they're doing. And so then the final blow is they really don't want you to have treatment. We know about treatment and we can talk about that later, but just in short summary, there are, there are lots of scientific data. Don't, be, don't let your listeners be, I'm sure your listeners are, are well-educated on this, but they should not be deceived that this is all just local you know, hoodoo. There's scientific 
studies that show and, and big epidemiology studies that show the benefit of these drugs like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and that show that D and zinc and NAC make a difference. Not only are they not, not only are they ignoring that, but they are purposely going after anybody that says it, um, like the Americans frontline doctors, Simone Gold specifically, they're going after uh, Mercola. They took down him sure. for just mentioning vitamin D, you know, um, this is insane. So they, by the way, I don't think it's coincidence that the second biggest hydroxychloroquine plant in the world just burned down. And last year we had two precursor plants that make Meg steroid, one in Mexico, one in Illinois, burned down the same day. Okay. This is kind of like the, the trail of suicides behind a certain uh, president and his wife. You know, right. it's just like there's some things are not that coincidental. Well, let me, let me ask you, let me ask you this. So if we come back and say that, that this is a bioweapon and it's the right. spike protein or a portion of the spike protein that causes the illness, how is it, if it isn't a virus, how is it that hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin could work? Now, the viruses are complicated. You can read virologists, and we and and they'll tell you that viruses aren't alive. Now, folks, that may sound crazy because we all think of live viruses. You know, I got contracted a virus, but in fact, viruses don't have any uh, of their. They don't have their own uh, mitochondria. They don't produce energy in and of themselves. They're not living organisms. They're particles, and it's it's hard to wrap your head around when I read these virologist reports when they argue about are they alive or not. You know there there are two sides to that, but how is it that the how is it the antiviral medication that really is an anti um, anti parasitic medication how is it that it can help resolve these problems I, I I use it because it works I can't understand how it works. Well, first of all, keep in mind if most of what we were treating was not COVID but actually flu flu then it would work then it would work the way we think they work, okay? But the other side of it is, um, a research friend of mine says, ivermectin actually binds to the head of the spike protein. Now, this is a little bit above my level of biochemistry, but if that's true, then it would work to neutralize the pathogen, right? Okay? and your body would then just get rid of it. The other thing is, um, it has to do with membrane uh, transmissibility. So you change the transmissibility. Let's suppose... Again, let's suppose that this is transmitted by air, then it would come in like a virus, even if it weren't a virus, because this is the part of the virus that, that is the, that, that causes the, the, the yeah, that causes the problem. Right. This, this is the, problem, the part that causes the problem. So I spray you with it. It gets into your cells, whether I whether the, the tail of this virus is attached or not. I will say the other thing is that one of the things of all you know, there's always good things to come out of every war. And, and we're not only have we learned a lot about treating the everyday cold and flu and bad viruses, but we're learning that we don't know as much as we thought we did about viruses and that this whole idea of infectious disease and what it actually means is under question. I mean, we've assumed a lot of things that may not be completely true and have thrown us off on the way we approach disease. And, and a perfect example of this I just learned was that Louis Pasteur had a diary that was published after his life saying that he had to falsify all his his public displays of transmissibility because he couldn't really prove that a pure culture of a bacterium caused disease. So we've got to go back and relook what we understand about how disease and getting over a disease works. But in this case, even if we're dealing with a non 
you know, uh, a, a this spike protein. I mean, there's just many ways it could possibly work. And so I, I don't know any more than that, but I think that the, it's a combination. Now, remember early on, we lost a bunch of people and what did we find that did work, for example, was IV vitamin C that the that the um, that the Chinese were using. Now, it's very interesting that a couple of years ago, and, and IV vitamin C works by improving your ability to improve your immune response to almost anything. Right. So that's a non-specific. That's like a shotgun, you know. And so that's a that's a non-specific thing. Same with N-acetylcysteine, which apparently is very successful. And I'll point out the other part of this that makes you think this is a war. Uh, we're fighting and not against our a virus, but against our own government or whoever, is that every time we find something that works, they try to take it off the market. Now they're trying to take NAC off the market because it's the latest hot thing. They've tried to, they've minimized the benefit of vitamin D. They didn't tell us simple things. And, you know, all of these things, again, vitamin D, why is that so important? That doesn't really stop viral replication per se, but it does something to your immune system, some something to your genetic behavior. And and so we're we're applying probably a a, a a global improvement to people's immune system to get them to be safe. You know, we stop the overshoot of the like like why does there's a new um I think it's fluoxamine. It's a it's an antidepressant that right. seems to work. And it it works in different ways. So that's all this is all the new exciting stuff we're learning. But I think that there's, I think we have to, the reason I'm even saying this the way I'm saying it is I think if you don't understand what the point here is, you won't be fighting the war correctly. And that is, if you think this is all by accident, then you're going to believe a lot of things that are simply not true. If you understand that this was a program takedown and that there's something nefarious here, you're going to look for that and you're going to be more suspicious when they just tell you to roll up your sleeve, for example. And that's why it's so important. Well, listen, Dr. Merritt, this has been a very fascinating discussion on the whole concept of where the virus, COVID virus, if it even exists, where it came from, how it got here, how it was funded. You mentioned that Fauci's a bagged man. And of course, that comes from the NIH money that went over to the Wuhan lab that helped them work on this particular coronavirus. And the fact that we had the reset where they talked about, that was back in October of 2019, where they talked about a pandemic reaching the whole world. It would be caused by a coronavirus. Oh, that's interesting how they know that. But anyway, we, we know that there's, there are some forces at work that have orchestrated this particular plandemic or scamdemic. Doesn't mean that there's not viruses out there, folks, or this virus doesn't exist. People aren't dying or getting sick. But the fact is, when you focus on only people being sick all the time, if we, if this, if nobody talked about the COVID virus this year, if this had never been talked about, guess what? We just think it's a regular flu season. There'd be nothing different in my practice. It's been nothing different at all compared to what has happened in all the years I've been in practice in the last 46 years. People get the flu during the uh, during in bronchitis, during uh, you got allergy season in the. I'm an allergist, by the way, and uh, is a primary trade. That's what I've done, and so they get the allergies in the 
fall. They get fall allergies from the ragweed, and then that leads into them getting bronchitis, and then you get the flu season, they get bronchitis. And, you know, it's a standard, you know, five- or six-month deal. with. And then you get the weed tree pollens in the spring. So you got about six months of people feeling pretty lousy if they have allergies or if they're in which wear down their immune system. Then they're susceptible to viruses, and they get the flu. And it's standard deal, and nobody thinks anything of it. You go, you know, hey, Jim had the flu last week. He was out of work for a week. Okay, big deal. Nobody worried about it, but now when they focus on this, and they in in the perspective, all they do is talk about this one particular issue about the COVID virus, and they're showing people dying uh, all the time, and they're not giving you any perspective on the deaths. You think about it: we got eight billion people in the world, and we had sixty million people on an average die every year, and two million people allegedly died from the so-called COVID virus. That is a fraction. I mean, we're talking a fraction of the population, and we're going to change the entire world because of a small per- two percent or two million people have died, and probably many have died of uh, other things besides the COVID. But they were called the COVID. And you think about that: two uh, these uh, two million out of eight billion people. And the people that died, the average age is approaching 80 years old, which is the life expectancy of most people in America. It's 80 years old, and they have comorbidities, and you and they're in nursing homes. And who goes to nursing homes, doctor? Do healthy people go to nursing homes? Who do you put in a nursing home? You put people that can no longer be taken care of by their families at home. They need round-the-clock care. So they're put in a nursing home. The average person lives in a nursing home 2.6 years. That's the average life expectancy in a nursing home. And they die of what? They die of infections. When? Usually during the flu season. They get the flu or they get bronchitis and they get secondary, you know, bronchial infection. They get sepsis. They get urinary tract infections. Uh, or they're overdosed on drugs there at the, at the, at the business and they're at the uh, nursing home and, and they die. Is it to be unexpected? You may know this, but my listening audience may not know it. 20% of the people that die every year in America are nursing home residents. Well, they may not die in the nursing home. They may go to the hospital, but they're nursing home residents, 20%. So if we have 2,500,000 people die every year, well, you've got 500,000 people that were nursing home residents that die. I'm not being cavalier about it, but that's just the circle of life. Born in a hospital, live, grow up, die, and then get sick and you hadn't taken care of your health, you end up in a nursing home, and you get an infection, and you die. That's what happens in life. So it should not be anything like, well, you're killing old people. No, we're not. Nobody's killing old people. People are dying of what we would call natural causes. As people age, they have a host of heart disease, they get diabetes, they get obese, they get kidney problems. And they die. That's what happens. It's appointed for all, all of us to die once. Now, that doesn't mean we should be cavalier and live unhealthy lives. We can live a very healthy life, and we should. And, and you ought to be, that's why I do natural approaches to health here at the Hotsey Health and Wellness Center. So we treat for airborne allergies, food allergies. We treat for yeast problems. We treat with natural thyroid hormone replenishment. We treat with natural hormones, bioidentical hormones. We use vitamins and minerals. We use an exercise program. We encourage people to be healthy naturally. And this is one thing, Dr. Merritt, you have never heard from any of the health bureaucrats on TV of how, what you can do to be healthy. 
how you can get your immune system healthy. They never talk about that. I was on in March or April of 2020. I was on Fox News Sunday nationwide. And there was a physician, uh, there were two people on the panel. There was one physician who was the vice president of some hospital group in Connecticut. And she was talking about the COVID virus and what needed to be done and on and on and on. Offered no help, really. And just how dangerous it was and how we needed to social distance, wear a mask and all that. And I go, I said, well, you know, what you need to do is you need to build up your immune system for crying out loud. God gave you an immune system. Get it healthy. And here's how you get it healthy. Vitamin A, B, C, D, zinc. Uh, take magnesium, you know, NAC, take uh, probiotics, exercise, get a good night's sleep, get your allergies under control, keep your hormones balanced. You'll do well. That's what happens when people are healthy and well. We've all been exposed to literally trillions of viruses and bacteria on a daily basis, and we're all alive. And in your, in, in your practice, I'm sure over the decades that you've been in practice, you've been exposed to all kinds of infectious people with infectious diseases, yet you're alive and well and kicking. Why is that? Because God gave you an immune system. That's what it's there for. So we don't want to hide and closet ourselves. We want to just live our lives normally and keep ourselves healthy so we can fight off and our, our immune system, both innate and adaptive immune system, can take care of the problem. So I thank you for bringing this to our attention, and I do want to bring you back and visit with you, particularly when we have more time. I want to bring you back and talk about this experimental gene-modifying injection that is being promoted so extensively by none other than His Holiness, Bill Gates, and the whole bunch, the whole crowd, Klaus Schwab and the whole crowd, and even Joe Biden's got in on it, you know. So uh, we'll talk about that. Thank you for joining us, and thank you so much, Dr. Merritt, for your extraordinary leadership in fighting this scamdemic. Thank you.